All right. Uh, good morning. Uh, we're going to be in uh, the, the verses you heard read this morning, Colossians 1, 21 through 2, 7. Um, it, uh, we're not going to spend, because we're covering a lot of ground, I'm not going to reread all of those verses. So this might be a little tricky, so you got to uh, keep your uh, finger ready to, keep, to follow along. I'm going to move through the verses sequentially, and so hopefully you'll, you won't find it too difficult to follow along, but I'm not going to necessarily... Uh, read each verse and then talk about it. So you'll just kind of have to keep the verses in front of you as I make comments on them as we go. And then we're going to really focus on the last two verses in that group, which is uh, 2, 6, and 7. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. This is a, a paraphrased version of the prayer that Paul prays uh, for the Colossians kind of at the beginning of the of the book. Um, and so we'll, we'll uh, bear with me as I kind of read my prayer here. Pray with me. Thank you, God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for this group of believers and our faith in Christ Jesus and the love that we have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. Please, Lord, fill this church with knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of our Lord Jesus, fully pleasing to him. Let this church bear fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of you, God, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might. Give this church all endurance and patience with joy. Cause us to give thanks to you, Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Fill us with thanksgiving for your deliverance from the domain of darkness and for transferring us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Give us this desire and strength and perseverance to walk in Christ Jesus as we received him rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as we were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Amen. So you probably all remember vividly my message a little over a year ago, so I won't have to spend too much time going over it, because I'm sure it was very memorable for you. But I spoke on the, the beginning of the book of Colossians, and I focused on uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. Um, so we're going to, and in that um, discussion, we, I, I made the assertion that we as humans are worshipers. And so that was one of the key ideas, is that we are worshiping something. What Paul wants us to see is Jesus is worthy of our worship, and more than worthy of our worship. And he's the only thing worthy of our worship. Um, we, um, so the, the book of Colossians is... Uh, Four short chapters. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he had never um, actually uh, been to. Um, he uh, had a friend named Epaphras, who maybe you know you could even consider Paul as uh, commissioning Epaphras as a church planter. And Epaphras went to Colossae and planted this church. So Paul doesn't personally know these folks, but he knows them of them through Epaphras, and he hears this report back from Epaphras saying that the church is struggling, and what they're struggling with is this idea of uh, worship, and they are wanting to add to their worship of Jesus um, with good intentions. They're, they're truly, you know, sincere Christians who want to know God and want to know Jesus, but they're being told, well, there's on one side, from a pagan and Gentile perspective, Colossae was, you know, like the Walmart of gods. So if you needed any god for any reason, he could be found in Colossae. They could, they could find a shrine to him or a temple, uh, something, you know, associated with every god under the sun that, that people had imagined. And also, 
there is this, uh, uh, based on what Paulus responds to the Colossians with, there also seems to be this idea that there's still some ritual need. So they need to follow some of the, of the Jewish r- rituals from the, um, you know, from the past. So very similar to Galatians, Paul addresses the same thing in Galatians, that you know, don't, you know, don't focus on what you eat or drink. That's not, that's not where, we're, where our focus needs to be. So Paul is writing this letter, and he wants the Colossians to understand that Jesus is all they need. Christ is all they need. He is supreme. He is, he is the one in whom the, we, we're, we've received, and that's what um, the, the, the general idea of the book is. And just like the, the Colossians, um, we have, in our, in our day, we have the tendency to want to add to uh, or take away from the gospel by adding things that we need to do or... Um, ways that we need to look or things that we need to make us feel fulfilled, um, things that we need over and above um, Jesus. So this is the overview of the book. Um, this is kind of an outline of the book. Okay, if I push that button, it changes the slide. I'm learning. So there's a brief introduction it's just a couple, um, a couple verses, and so kind of follow along with me in your Bibles as I kind of as I go through these. Again, we're going to move quickly through what we've already covered. That's kind of grayed out a little bit, and then um, you know points D and then to the through uh, two, six, and seven. That's where we're going to focus our time. So Paul gives an introduction, and I think just the general tone of the book is very encouraging. He Paul wants the, the believers to be encouraged that. They are on the right path. They are doing the right things. They don't need to add to what they've, what they've been doing. And he calls them brothers and in Christ and saints. That must have been very important. A lot of folks think that the Colossian church was probably not a lot bigger than our church. It was a small group of believers who were struggling and being, you know, kind of hearing things from all sides on things that they needed to do different. And they were wanting to be faithful. And Paul, they received this, you can imagine receiving a letter. It's not like today where most of our mail is junk, right? They received this letter that was delivered to them um, by Onesimus, who actually in one trip carried the letter to, um, to Colossae and as well as uh, to Philemon. So the letter we have to Philemon was also carried by Onesimus in the same trip. And he delivers these two letters, and, and this is the one to the Colossians, right? And so they receiving this letter, they, this would have been an, a big occasion for them. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. This is big news. What does Paul have to say to us? Are we in trouble, right? You can think of some of the other letters, uh, you know, where, where Paul's pretty, you know, he's still encouraging, but he's pretty harsh with some of the things they've been doing. And so to, to hear this opening of, we, you know, to, to my fellow brothers in Christ, the saints, and then he, he jumps right in with telling him that, he is. He and Timothy are thanking them uh, without. They're, they're thanking God for them, and that's again another big encouragement. Wow, Paul is is thanking God for us. Paul's in prison at this point, and uh, and he's thinking about us, right? We're we're this little church that uh, he's never been to and doesn't know any of us, uh, but he's thanking God for them. And what is he thanking God for? It's their faith and hope and love for all those saints is is at least spreading far enough to that that uh, Paul has heard about it, right? So he's hearing good things uh, about their, their, you know, this church, and he wants to encourage them to continue. Um, there's a hint, as Paul starts to talk about what he's praying for them, there's a hint at what this book is all about. So 
Paul and Timothy are praying without ceasing, it says. Without ceasing, uh, we are praying for you. So, he, again, that would have to be a big encouragement to this church to know that Paul's praying for them. And there's a hint about what he's in the prayer, and it's you know very much, uh, like I said, a paraphrase of what I prayed at the beginning. He's, he's praying that they would walk worthy, that they would please God, that they would bear fruit, that they would increase in, in the knowledge of God, that they would be strengthened by all his glorious might, um, and endurance and patience with joy, and that they would be and and that um, they would be filled with thankfulness because of their sharing in the inheritance of the saints, because they've been transferred from the darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, and because of their redemption and forgiveness of sin. So Paul's just hitting him with all these great theological truths that apply to them, and then he goes into what we spent our most of our time on last time which is verses 15 through 19, this beautiful hymn about Jesus. A lot of folks think this is an actual hymn that might have been sung in churches uh, in the early church. Um, it's, got a, it's got stanzas and a refrain. Um, there is The first part is all focused on how Jesus is supreme over all creation. Everything is created for him and by him and through him. And then the second part is very similar. Jesus is supreme over our church, the church as a whole, the universal church. And it just paints this beautiful picture of who Jesus is, his supremacy, his, his worth of our, of our uh, worship. And um, it's got a chiastic structure to it. So there's these mirror images. If you look at it, you know, just without even reading all the way through, you can just kind of see some of the similar, similar languages. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, and he's the firstborn from the dead, right? He's the, he's the first fruits of the resurrection and, and those, those kind of ideas. So this... Why has Paul put this beautiful picture of Jesus in there? Because he, he's trying to convince them Jesus is what you need. Jesus is what you're looking for. The gaps or the, the things that you feel are missing in your church, Jesus has the answer for. Um, there is nothing better. There's nothing after. Uh, as as uh, J.D. Greer put it, um, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. As soon as we start adding to Jesus, as soon as we start adding to our faith and saying we, we need Jesus, but we also need this other thing, and that could be you know, something um, big or small, but something that you're adding to your life to fulfill yourself, to, to give yourself the, um, you know, the full life that you, that you need. If it's uh, above and beyond Jesus, then it's actually subtracting Jesus' uh, from your glorification of Jesus. So now we're going to get into the part, so this is now where we're covering new material. So verses 20 through 23, Paul gives, now he's starting to apply Jesus' work and Jesus' worth and, Jesus, and who Jesus is to you, Colossians. So he's saying now, you know, he, he talks about how, how big and great Jesus is, and now he's specifically applying it to you. So Paul is narrowing in from the big picture and why does all this information about Jesus matter to you? Well, it's because um, he starts with the bad news, right? Just like uh, our, all our catechisms that we've gone through, we have to understand the bad news before we can hear the gospel, right? We have to understand where we were or where we are, depending on who you are, uh, to understand the good news of the gospel. So the bad news is you are alienated. You are, you are far from God. You were, not just, you were not just didn't know God. God was your enemy, Right? And so we don't a lot of times think about that in, in ourselves, maybe. And, and certainly if you're a, a non-believer, a lot of people, you know, just the average person, probably doesn't think of themselves as God's enemy. 
uh, hostile in mind and alienated from God. But that's our condition. And so Paul says, you were alienated from God. You were hostile in your mind and evil in your deeds in verse 20. But you were reconciled. And not just reconciled like God just kind of overlooked your bad behavior, but reconciled in the idea of, you know, Jesus in his body, in his flesh, Paul says, in his death, reconciled you and redeemed you. So where after this beautiful picture of who Jesus is, now Paul's saying, and this Jesus is, is good news for you personally. And instead of it treating you like you deserved, he's reconciled you and brought you in to be from enemy to God to child of God. This great king over the whole universe is not just supreme over all, he's supreme over the church, but he's also supreme over you. He's not just, he didn't just create everything, he also built the church, and he's building the church. And he didn't just build the church, he built this church. And not only did he build this church, he created you and put you in it, and he's, and he's holding you together. So he's trying to make this really personal for them. He's trying to help them to see that what they need is Jesus, and that there's not other things added to it. The gospel has been proclaimed throughout the world, it says, and that gospel has been the same gospel that's received by you. So you received this gospel, past tense. And that's what you need. It's, it's going all throughout the world, and it's good news for everybody, but it's good news for you. Notice in, uh, in verse 23 there how Paul puts a contingency on this. Paul is saying that this is, all, of, all of this applies to you if you persevere. You notice that? It's, he's talking about if you persevere. And we're going to come back to that idea uh, in a few, in a few uh, verses. But this idea that not all will persevere. And uh, that certainly could, again, there's, there's cha- chapter 1 of Colossians is chock full of potentially problematic verses that make you scratch your head a little bit. Um, the whole firstborn of creation, right? Does that mean Jesus was firstborn? We talked about that. Um, that just means, you know, he's preeminent. He's, he's like a king. Uh, he, he's given that place of authority. Um, and this is another one of those verses. Paul's not saying that you can lose your salvation. Paul's not saying you need to do these sets of things, otherwise you will not persevere. But he is saying that not all who appear to be in the light are in the light. Not all who appear to be. There are some of the aliens that were alienated from God that are in disguise. We're going to come back to that idea here in a second. Another problematic verse is verse 24. So as we move into the suffering of Jesus' servants for the sake of the church, verses 24 and 25, um, or I'm sorry, through 2-5, uh, Paul is, um, is, you know, starts to turn his attention from this good news of who you were and who Christ has now made you in, by his death to Paul and his suffering. So why does Paul shift to his suffering? Is he just wants them to feel bad for him? He wants, he wants some sympathy? Um, you know, what, what is it that Paul is looking for to, to share in this? And Paul, first of all, starts off right, right away by saying in verse 24, I'm rejoicing in my suffering. So, of course, only a, only a mad person would rejoice in suffering unless that suffering was for something of great value. Paul is suffering in his flesh. Notice the the terminology he used for suffering in his flesh is the same terminology he uses back in verse, uh, I think it's 20 or 21, uh, you know, concerning um, 
Jesus in his flesh, in the body of his flesh, and his death is what brought, brought about um, their reconciliation to God. And now Paul is suffering in his flesh um, for the, I'm sorry, it's verse 22, uh, for the sake of the body, for the church, right? So Christ's body is now um, the church, and, and Paul is suffering in his flesh for, for Christ's body. And then he says this kind of strange phrase in verse 24, that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. So is Paul saying that, well, Jesus' Jesus's death and suffering on the cross was, was really important, and it reconciled us, but not totally. And so we need us to suffer, people like Paul to suffer, and us ourselves to suffer, in order to kind of push ourselves over, to kind of really make God happy with us. You can think of the idea of purgatory, right? Yeah, Jesus' death got you that far. You're not in hell, but you're going to have to suffer for a while in order to get to heaven, right? That kind of that idea. Well, to help us out with this, um, interesting. So now the clicker is, <laughs> is moving the, my Word document instead of the PowerPoint. All right. So now um, we are wrestling against principalities that are in my computer. They're working against us right now. Uh, <laughs> so in Philippians uh, 2, 29 and 30, Paul is talking about, uh, this is, uh, you know, kind of um, the book of Philippians. He's talking in this particular section about a man named Epaphroditus, not to be confused with Epaphras. This is two different guys that start with E and has a lot of P's in their names. Um, but Epaphroditus, he's saying, should be received, telling the Philippians, receive him with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So you can see I, I kind of highlighted the word complete and lacking. Those are the same words that Paul uses in Colossians to say, I am completing what is, I'm filling up, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So when he says that, um, I'm sorry, I have to keep going back and forth to find my place. Um, so when he says that, what is lacking in the Philippians' service to Paul? So let's see if we can make a parallel here to see if, what Paul was meaning by this. Well, what Epaphroditus was doing, risking his life, is he was delivering a gift from the Philippians who couldn't physically be with Paul because Paul was in prison. So they, were, they had collected this gift and they, were, they sent Epaphroditus as a representative to Paul to deliver the gift. So what was lacking in their service to him? Was it that they didn't love him? Was he complaining that the gift wasn't enough? No, they weren't physically present with him. He, they couldn't deliver the gift directly to Paul because there was a distance between them. They were separated. And so they, they elected a representative, Epaphroditus, to go and deliver that gift to Paul. And Paul's very grateful for that gift, and he thanks them for the gift. And he also is praising Epaphroditus for being that messenger. So what was lacking in their gift was really just their presence. So back to... Colossians, uh, 
What does Paul mean that he is, his suffering is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? What he means by that is, while Christ died for you and suffered what no human can suffer, right? Because Jesus was infinite as God, he could suffer infinitely. And he did suffer infinitely for our sins, which is why he was able to pay for not just some of our sins, but all of our sins. And he is more than paid for. He's more than taken God's wrath for us. So Jesus' suffering was complete, but some, sometimes it's hard for someone to look back in the past, and this was only maybe you know, 20 or 30 years after uh, Jesus died, but think of now somebody who, 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 who's heard of Jesus, they know of Jesus, but it doesn't feel real to them. But when somebody suffers directly for your benefit... That might speak to that person. That might speak to that heart of a non-believer or speak to the, the heart of a, a believer and encourage them in a way that it makes it tangible. We are Jesus' hands and feet and mouths to speak, right? Uh, there was a story, uh, as you guys know, whenever I preach, I always listen to lots of other messages on, on the same topics. And one of them was uh, John Piper was sharing a story about a Maasai warrior in Africa who had heard the good news of Jesus was immediately changed. Just in that moment, he, somebody had preached to him, and he, he saw it, and he understood it, and, and it changed his life instantly. And he was excited to go back to his village and share what he had learned. And so he walks into the village, and these people that know him have known him his whole life, he starts sharing the good news of Jesus. They hate him for it. And not only do they hate him for it, and they want to get rid of him, they beat him. So they hold him down, and they beat him with barbed wire until he's nearly dead. They drag his body outside the village and leave him for dead. Somehow, he survives. He, 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 he's laying there in, in, in scarred and, and bloody and, and uh, in very poor shape out in the wilderness by himself, and, and he just keeps going over what he said over and over in his head, and he's just thinking, I must have just not... I must have not conveyed it right, because if they would have heard what I heard, they would understand, and they wouldn't have treated me that way. So he goes back to his village, and, they immediate, and, and he starts telling them again, and they immediately grab him and hold him down and beat him until he's nearly dead, and they drag him back out again. So the third time, you would think he would have learned his lesson, he goes back in, they beat him again, and as he's about to lose consciousness, he starts to see in their faces tears Running down, their, running down their cheeks. And he wakes up in his own bed with bandages all over him. And it was his suffering in his body that spoke to those, that, that village of folks that hated him because of his message. And it wasn't the words that he said, but it was his affliction. It was his suffering that spoke to those people. That's what Paul means by his suffering is filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. be uh, familiar with that idea as well. When Paul was called by Jesus on the road to Damascus, he said, um, Jesus said to him, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? Paul, Paul hadn't actually persecuted Jesus personally, but he was persecuting Jesus' people. When we suffer, it's Jesus suffering through us. Right? And that, that's Jesus' love um, that we're suffering for someone else. So Paul, now in verse 25, says he's a faithful steward of a priceless gift. Does that sound familiar? 
He's got this gift that he's delivering, and he's the steward of this gift. This is the gospel, this mystery. That's just like Epaphroditus delivering the message, delivering the gift to Paul from the Philippians, right? And so Paul is the steward of this mystery. And when the Bible says mystery, it doesn't mean it like we might mean mystery like uh, a mysterious thing that's hard to understand and, um, and maybe impossible to understand. When, when the Bible uses the term mystery, what it means is something that was hidden and is now seen. So what is this mystery? What's the gospel? For hundreds of years and generations, Paul wants them to understand their place in history. Where you're at right now is a privileged place. For generations and generations, this was, there was this mystery that was God had made promises of something, and, we, and, and no one really had their arms around what that was. And now that mystery is revealed, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is what the generations past have been looking forward to. And now you have him. You have received Jesus. Not only that, in generations past, this would have, what, God was revealing himself to Jews, to his people, his chosen people. And now to the whole world, Gentiles and all nations included. So Paul wants them to understand that this, is, this good news that they've received is not just new news. It's something that's been looked forward to for generations. So Paul is a faithful steward, and he wants to, them to understand that, that this message, he wants to warn them. In verse 25, he wants, he wants to teach them with all wisdom. And why? Because he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. That's why Paul is suffering and striving. At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says he wants them to know how great a struggle he has for them. And that word struggle could be translated toil or labor or striving. And one of the word pictures that you might put in place there is, is an athlete who's pushing his body to the limits and striving with all he has to try to accomplish this goal. So Paul is struggling. He wants to know the, the struggle that he has for them and for those in Laodicea, which the, this letter would have been delivered to Colossians and then passed on to Laodicea as well, which is just down the road. Paul never met them, but he wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be knit together in love. He wants them to reach the full riches of assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Does this sound repetitive? Is Paul, is Paul repeating himself a lot? Yeah, he is. He really wants to drive home this idea that everything you need is in Christ. And so after... All of the, everything that's led up to this point in, the, in, in, in Colossians, up to verse 6 and 7, because it starts with a therefore, right? Verse 6 and 7 starts with therefore as you received Christ. So we want to see what it's there for, right? We want to see what came before it. And what's come before it is he's, he's praising their coming in faith. He's praising their love for all the saints. He's thanking for them. He's reminding them the gospel they received is being proclaimed in the whole world. He's praying for their continuation in faith without ceasing. He's giving them this glorious picture of who Jesus is that they followed, showing them the greatness of Jesus and how that directly benefits them personally and their church. He's sharing how God's servants are suffering for them and toiling for them personally, reminding them of their place in history, how generations after generations had looked forward to this, this mystery, this promise, and now he's here and, he's, and it's Jesus and you have received that, that promise. 
And he repeatedly, over and over, he just keeps saying this idea again over and over of everything they need is in Christ. So here, I have the heart next to these verses. Uh, that's because, you know, you, you can consider this is the heart of the message of the of book of Colossians. After this, Paul starts, he, he talks a little bit, uh, the rest of chapter 2 is really focused on some of these, these plausible arguments that, they're, that are being shared with them and these things that are deluding them or be, that they're tempted to be confused by or things that they're tempted to add or take away. Uh, you can see in green there the sections that we aren't going to cover today. Then chapters 3 and 4 are all about practical living. How do we practically put this in place? So this is kind of the crux of the message is Paul wants them to know that as you receive Christ, so walk in Him. How are they going to do that? They're going to be rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and that's going to result in abounding thanksgiving. So these are the verses that we're going to focus on. I, I noticed that I did uh, the, the verses that I put up here are in the NASB, and that's because it's translated a little bit differently. So if you are following along in your Bible, you, you can look at your Bible while I read the NAS, NASB, and you'll notice the difference. Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So that having been firmly rooted, it just says in the, in the uh, ESV, it just says something like, you, um, be rooted and be built up, kind of. So it's like future tense or present tense. But he, Paul wants, so I wanna, what it, the NSB is a little bit more literal in this case. And it says, having been firmly rooted and being built up. So the being built up is what we're working on now. But we have already been rooted in Christ, if you're a, if you're a believer. So there's a few things to, to, walk, to, to talk through here. Um, so this walking in Christ is what he's challenging them to do. And how they should do that is recognizing that they have been firmly rooted and that they are being built up and established in their faith, just as they were taught. So um, the notice that I've got in this so, under so walk there on the slide, as you received, so just as they received the gospel is how they're supposed to continue to walk. That is, you know, think about what a, new, a new believer, when they first hear the good news of Jesus, what are, what are the things that they're, they're understanding at that point? They have to understand the bad news, that I'm a sinner, that, I can't, that I'm alienated from God, as Paul put it, that I'm hostile in mind and, and I need reconciliation, that I can't do that myself and that I'm reliant on Jesus to change my heart, to forgive my sins, and I'm putting my faith in His death on the cross and His resurrection to, be the puni the, to take the punishment for the sins that I deserve. Those are the things that you need to walk in. Those are the truths you need to walk in, and He's reminding them not to try to add to that, not to try to put more on top of that, to put works and other things on top of that. As you received Christ, so that, now, the second time I've repeated that same line, I've highlighted the you, and, and, and the idea there is that you personally have received Christ. Again, that might not be true for everybody in the Colossian church, just like it might not be true for everybody in this room. So um, make sure that you have received Christ. 
And as you received Christ, what did you receive? You received Christ. That's it. And that's enough. So how are they supposed to be walking? Which is kind of ironic. We're mixing some metaphors here, right? How we're walking with roots. Um, how are you supposed to walk having been firmly rooted in him, in Christ? So that's a horticultural term, right? If you think about roots, you think about um, you know, plants. Um, and the idea that uh, you guys might have seen something like this. I bet the folks in, uh, in Florida and, and North Carolina after Hurricane Ian have seen some of this, right? This is a pine tree. Pine trees are notorious for getting blown over. Why is that? Well, they, they grow up very tall, very quickly, and their roots tend to be shallow. They tend to have broad, shallow roots. The other thing that can be a, a big factor in this, and I looked this up just to make sure that I was, I was speaking accurately, the two big factors are the depth of the roots and the soil that the root is rooted in. So if the soil is soft and maybe sandy and doesn't have a lot of you know, uh, structure to the soil, it'll also make it more likely for this tree to topple over. Paul wants them to persevere. If they're going to be able to withstand the, uh, the wind and the, the torrent of, of this world and the, and the hardships that they're going to have to face, they're going to have to have good roots. These are some pictures I found online. And uh, I was specifically looking for something like the one on the right there. But the one on the left, you can see those root structures better. These are, and this is some forest in Pennsylvania where the, the guy was saying that these are some of the oldest trees in, um, in, in North America, hundreds of years old. And you can see those roots there. For them to have lasted hundreds of years, those roots have to be deep. And they're, they're actually growing right into bedrock. And so they're able to hold on to the side of a cliff like that one on the right is. It's like a 30-foot drop according to the website right in, in that picture and so it's holding on to this big big, big tall tree on the side of the roots all rooted in, in it all it's all it's all based on those roots those roots have to be firmly planted so what are we planted in what are we rooted in well we're rooted in Jesus and that's a past tense um, we have been rooted in Jesus if we are Christians Jesus is the good soil so some of the other things that come to mind right away here right is the parable of the sower. A sower went out and, threw, and sowed, sowed his seeds, and some fell on rocky ground, and, and they shot up quickly because there was rocks there, and that's actually true, that plants do tend to grow up more when they don't have room to grow their roots. So it shoots up quickly, which actually makes them easier to get blown over because they're taller. That's what happens with pine trees, right? So this idea that we have to, we have to grow roots, we have to grow roots down into Jesus, we have to be in Christ, in our roots, in order to be firm and persevere. Um, if our roots are somewhere else, we won't persevere. So if we aren't in Christ, we might look like a Christian, we might act like a Christian most of the time, but if our roots aren't in Christ, we won't persevere. That doesn't mean we're going to lose our salvation. It means we might not be rooted in the right thing in the first place. Um, All right, back to scroll. The other thing that comes to mind is the, the, um, the uh, Psalm 1, a man who, uh, who, the righteous man is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Um, and then the other, the other word picture from the Bible that comes to mind is when Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Branches don't have roots. 
Um, and we have to be in Christ, right? So that, again, we're mixing a little bit of metaphors here, but that, that same idea of if you ever you know, decided to take a branch off your tree and stick it in the ground and hope a, hope a tree grows, it's not going to work because it needs the sustenance from the tree. Um, so those are the, that's, that's what some of the things that Paul has in mind here. And then we switch to an art, architectural uh, metaphor. So this is a, a picture of a foundation being built. So we are built, being built up. So now this is what we're doing actively now. We're being built up on, uh, in him. So we can think about Christ as our foundation. The Bible talks about Jesus as the cornerstone, the stumbling block of uh, offense, but he's the cornerstone that our lives are to be built on. There's the story of the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the foolish man built his house upon the sand. You can also imagine, you know, in, to apply this to the Colossians, they weren't trying to build their house on the sand. They were trying to build their house on Christ, on the firm foundation of Jesus. But you can imagine a builder who lays out, a, an architect who lays out a plan and then, go, and then hands it to the builder, and the builder decides, you know what, I like it, but I'm going to do a little addition here and a little addition there. We're going to add on to what you've designed. And some of that add-on is going to be outside of, outside of the foundation, right? So if we picture Jesus as our foundation, I think that's maybe a good analogy for what the, what the Colossians are being tempted to do, is build a little addition onto their faith, off to the side, that's not on the foundation of Jesus. Well, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to crumble. It's going to fall because it's not on that foundation. That's why foundations are built. So who's our architect? Who, who has the plan and design for our life? Well, God does. And the plan, the blueprint that we're supposed to build our lives on is found in, the, in, in God's Word. And how does that relate back to Christ? Well, all of God's Word is really about Jesus. That's, he is the, he's the, the point of, of all of it. So our, us walking in Christ and being built up in Christ and being rooted in Christ is the idea that, uh, that Paul is sharing here. Postmodernism, you might have heard this story before. I've heard it a bunch of different places. You know, there's this building, I think, it, I want to say it was Ohio State, but somebody was visiting Ohio State, and there's this building that's kind of dedicated to postmodernism. And so it's got all these art, you know, displays and things like that that are dedicated to this idea that truth is subjective, right? And then the, the question is, you know, when they built the building, did the architect use this same principles of postmodernism uh, when he was designing the building? And if so, you wouldn't want to be in the building, right? Because, because building designs have to uh, follow along with these, you know, kind of uh, stubborn, shallow-minded ideas like gravity, right? <laughs> if, if you don't follow the laws of physics, you can't say, well, this is my truth. This is how I built my building. Otherwise, it's not going to stay standing, right? So that's how that should apply to our lives as well. This building idea is we have to build according to our, our architect's plan. We have a designer that has built us, that has designed us to be built in, in this way, and he's given us the materials to build our lives with. And if we try to deviate from that and add on to that is when things start to crumble. When he uses the term established, um, he is, you know, you know, it makes me think of like a building that has the established 1804 or something like that on it, right? It, it's got a place in history. It's been established. It's firmly rooted and it's planted. And we need to be established in our faith. We need to know our place in history and in God's big story. And then he repeats it at the end 
just as you were taught. So he's, he's saying again, just as you received Christ, that's, that's how you need to walk in Christ. And then finally, how is that going to be evident in our life? How is our building and our, in our roots evident in our life? Because we're going to be abounding in thanksgiving. So applications for this are pretty easy because Paul's basically giving applications to this as he goes, right? But, um, but just some, just some f- final words of thought in, in application. Um, have you received the gospel? Have you, received, have you been transferred? Are you still an alien? Are you still alienated from God? Uh, we, it's easy for us to think that that's not the case for anybody in our church. Um, we, we're all Christians here, and that's probably true, but it is, it is good for us to think about that for ourselves. Are we in his light, or are we still in darkness? Have we been transferred to the kingdom of, of God, or, we, or not? So, um, are we a walking in him alone? Are we trusting in other things for our hope and our pleasure and our fulfillment and our joy? Or are we trusting in Christ for all those things? Um, it's very subtle and it's not, it's not like uh, it would have been in Colossians where you, know, you can tell if somebody's worshiping something else because they have the little idols in their house, right? It's very subtle, but you can, it's, what do we spend our time on? What do we care about? What do we spend our money on? What do we spend our efforts on? Um, what, are, where, what makes us feel uncomfortable or, or afraid? Is it, is it our bank account or our, you know, the, the stock market going up and down? Is that where our hope is, is placed? And I know uh, this, is, this is all very convicting for me because I can think of lots of things that I sometimes want to put my hope in and not in Christ. Um, have you tried to move beyond the gospel? Have you tried to you know, add things to it and say, well, yes, you know, I understand Jesus died for my sins, and that's, that's all good, but I, I need the, this book or this, this other thing on top of that. I think the, a really great lit, litmus test and the one that really challenged me the most is, is that last uh, phrase in, in these verses, abounding in thanksgiving. You might ask your spouse or your children, am I abounding in thanksgiving? Brave enough to do that. Um, because really we have so much to be thankful for, and Paul's laid out so many good things here that we have to be thankful for. And um, it's easy for us to, uh, to be not thankful. That's our natural state, is not to be thankful. Without God, it's hard for us to, it's hard for me to even imagine. When we, we come to Thanksgiving, I always kind of laugh when there's this secular celebration of Thanksgiving. It's like, who are you thanking, right? There has to be an object of your thanks. So recognizing what we have in Christ and what we have in, in God um, makes us, should make us thankful. It should fill us with thank, thankfulness, and that should be how we're characterized by the people around us. Well, let's uh, close in prayer. Uh, thank you for your attention, and I, just, I, just, I do pray that we would, um, we would, this would you know, take root in our lives and, and that we would uh, be thankful for all the things that we have and that we would continue to walk in Christ and be rooted and built up in Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for our time together this morning. I thank You for just Your Word. I thank You for this letter to the Colossians. I pray that You would um, fill our hearts with thankfulness for Your goodness. I pray that we would see Jesus the way He is, not the way we imagine Him, not the way we want to see Him, but the way He is, and that that would fill our hearts with awe and thankfulness, that we would worship Jesus, um, that we would not try to replace him or add to him with other things. Uh, I thank you for the sufficiency of our King, 
and the goodness of our King, that he, would, um, that he would be willing to condescend to us, that while we were yet sinners, that he would die for us. I thank you for that, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would, um, you would make this church firmly rooted. You would help our roots to grow, that we wouldn't try to reach our roots out to other things to, to grow in that are, um, you know, inferior soils. I pray that you would help us to uh, trust in you alone for our hope in life and in death. I pray that you would bless our time together uh, as we close out our service, and I just uh, thank you again for all your many blessings to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.